So again, uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome again to our, our gathering. I want to continue the series of talks that I've been giving in the last weeks, which I've uh, titled Deepening Our Practice uh, During the Pandemic. And by practice, I'm referring broadly to three areas that we could call areas of our practice. The first is our own individual formal practice, what we might do, as it were, on the cushion, uh, sitting quietly, walking, and so forth. Second area of practice is our more informal practice, maybe at home with friends and family, uh, might be at work, and so forth in our community. And the third area of practice is our service or work or activism in the larger social world. So I'm considering practice in all those dimensions. And then in terms of when I talk about deepening our practice during the pandemic, I, like some of my friends, uh, talk about the multiple pandemics or the multiple crises that uh, we're in the midst of, and I guess these would be, uh, some of them would be, some of this would be similar to what's there in uh, Mexico or Rio de Janeiro and some specific to the, to the U.S., but the, the, um, the different crises of uh, racial justice and the economy and the climate and here in the U.S., many talk about the crisis of democracy and then add to that the... Uh, immediate circumstances related to the fires on the West Coast and storms in the Southeast and so forth. So there's a lot going on and our practice uh, in that broad sense of uh, cultivating these uh, qualities of awareness, wisdom, skillful response, uh, the kind heart, really, really... Uh, important and precious during this time. So I've looked already at a number of different themes related to deepening practice, and these are recorded, these have been recorded and are there on the website uh, dharmaseed, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D uh, dot org, given talks on the centrality of mindfulness of the body, for deepening practice, uh, working with reactivity and other kinds of challenges, uh, the value of working with intentions and pausing, stopping, the connections between formal practice and informal practice. And two times ago I started to look at the foundations of wise and skillful speech, so central to uh, our practice. You know, I, I sometimes have thought that uh, many of us may complain, oh, it's really hard to find half an hour a day for my formal meditation practice, but if we take our speaking, our communication, which could include electronic communication, 
and that becomes an area of practice. All of a sudden, many of us have five or ten hours of dedicated spiritual practice. And as many of you know, uh, wise speech, or, or sometimes translated as uh, right speech, was one of the areas uh, that we have from 2,600 years ago. So it was seen as one of the central areas of training. So we've had two sessions so far on uh, wise and skillful speech. What I want to do is review very briefly where we've been and then take us into two further areas. One is the, is the development of the capacity to be present and aware, mindful, in the midst of speech, to have our speech, in other words, be less automatic. And then the bulk of the time I want to explore on the basis of our foundations how to be skillful in challenging her difficult speech situations. And this again could include our relationships, our work, but also how we intervene in the larger world. So that's what I want to focus on today. I'll give some guidance towards the end for continuing the exploration in the next week, and then we can also come back and share what we've explored next time and continue with the investigation. Because what I'm imagining that I uh, will be doing is identifying, I want to identify eight basic uh, capacities that help us be more skillful with speech. And it probably will be enough just to speak of those eight. And I may come back in the next time or two and go into more depth on what those uh, eight capacities are. So that's my focus. Uh, continuing on wise speech as a, as a core practice, looking at the foundations of wise speech more briefly, and then going to how we work uh, in difficult or challenging situations. So the first foundation that we've looked at is the one that we get especially from the historical Buddha, from the tradition. These are four ethical guidelines for skillful speech, which uh, I mentioned uh, when I taught that I, uh, two times ago, or, or last time I was here, that I actually have these on my wall near my telephone, and I've also helped to bring into groups, uh, remembering the guidelines before meetings. So these are very helpful, and uh, these are the guidelines of being truthful, being helpful, coming out of a good heart, and having good timing. I'm going to be very brief with these, but these are very crucial, and I'll come back to these because really resting with this foundation is one of the ways we can be skillful when things are, are difficult. And so uh, first we want to be uh, truthful. We want to generally uh, speak the truth. There are a lot of subtleties to these teachings. Uh, you know, we can ask what you know about very extreme situations. Should I tell the truth when a you know someone asks? You know, someone runs by with a uh, chasing someone and said, "Where did the person go?" 
you know, there are there are subtleties and complexities, but generally speaking, uh, being truthful is a very important guideline, which builds trust, obviously, between people and communities, and so forth. And uh, these guidelines are especially helpful, both for guiding our behavior, but also for giving us like uh, wake-up calls to look inside. Okay. I just exaggerated. I just said something that's not so true. Why did I do that? We can use these as starting points for mindfulness. Oh, gosh, I feel a little insecure here, and I was saying that to bolster my self-image or whatever, right? So all of these guidelines can be used in that double way. They can guide our behavior, and they can also be connected with mindfulness and investigation, when I notice myself violating one of the guidelines, I can stop and say, what's going on? What's happening? A key point that we looked at the last time I was here is that all of the guidelines have to work together. So we want to be truthful, but we also want to be helpful and come out of a good heart and have good timing. We can be very, very truthful, but not be helpful. You know, and sometimes we actually use truth as a kind of a weapon, right? You know, we, we tell the, the hard, bitter truth to um, actually to hurt someone. That could be our motivation. So we want to connect the guidelines together. All of them have to be in play for this, for speech to be skillful. So again, we can look at when am I... Uh, being helpful? Can I use the guideline to really help me be more helpful, be more constructive? And then what's happening when I seem to violate the guideline or, or um, in some way not following it fully? In a similar way, we want to look at the third guideline, which may be one of the harder ones, which is to come out of a kind heart with our speech. You know, and I mentioned when I brought this up the last time that uh, this is generally to ground ourselves in kindness and whatever language you use, compassion and love. You know, I, I think of uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, the person who stayed in the Redwoods about 20 years ago, and she had a a way of asking yourself about every action, is it coming out of love? We recognized that this also refers to challenging or difficult types of situations where we have to say something that the other person may not want to hear, is creating a boundary, that we want to create a boundary, we want to say no, we want to say that's not okay. And this is where this guideline is challenging to follow, but it's possible. Can I, and again, some of us may know how to work with this saying something difficult, saying no, coming out of love, maybe with the way we've set boundaries for children or, you know, for partners that we may know that uh, way that we actually can combine care with saying something the other person doesn't want to hear or has difficulty hearing. 
And there's a lot we could say about each of these, but I'm trying to be, be brief here. And the fourth is especially about good timing. I, again, I like to joke that we can be incredibly truthful, helpful, come out of a beautiful heart, and if our timing is off, it can be a mess. Right? That's <laughs> so all of them have to be together. Right? And so we want to, I, I always, uh, I sometimes think about the Buddha wandering around talking to people. How's your timing? How's your timing? How's your timing? Right? So we want to, we want to keep on asking that. And so that's the first foundation that we covered. The second foundation that we covered is that of empathy, of connecting with the, or being with someone with the intention to connect emotionally, have mutual understanding. And I went into some depth on that the last two times. Empathy is an innate capacity, but it's also something that we can do deliberately as a practice. Because even though empathy is innate, uh, it's something that we don't always have. It can be blocked. And in fact, it can be sometimes misused. Uh, that it can be sometimes used to manipulate people. So I like to think of empathy as a deliberate practice to understand another and connect with another. So it has that strong intention of connection, which I think empathy as an innate capacity tends to lead to, but it can be misused. Again, especially, you know, we notice this in the political season. Politicians can tune in and be, in a sense, know what someone else is feeling, but use that information in a manipulative way. That, can, that does happen. And so we especially looked at empathy as a practice in terms of tuning in and here we used uh, the framework of nonviolent communication, tuning into what someone is feeling, the emotions, and then what matters for the person, which in uh, nonviolent communication is called the needs. And these are the legitimate needs, uh, the need for uh, nutrition, physical well-being, health, respect, freedom, autonomy. And we distinguish needs from strategies, which are the ways that we try to find uh, ways to meet the needs. So we can have a very good need and an unskillful strategy. I can have a deep need for peace, but I may become an alcoholic to try to get peace. Out, uh, drinking would be the strategy. The need remains legitimate. And you can see perhaps how that can open up some compassion and empathy if we make that distinction really, really crucial. Because a lot of what's difficult for us in our communication is when someone else may be using an unskillful strategy. And if we can recognize that there's actually a legitimate need there that can be very helpful for resolving the differences. Not easy, but that can be helpful. And then the third foundation that I haven't talked about so much is the foundation of being present or mindful as we speak or as we listen. And this is not easy. This is a intermediate or advanced capacity that we can, even now as you're listening, even now as I'm speaking, can I be present to myself? Can you be present 
so that we're not totally wrapped up with automatic thinking or that we're not totally in the thinking realm. You know, I take as a intention when I give talks, for example, to be grounded in my body and actually to notice my body as I speak. Not, not easy to develop, but it uh, uh, can be very important to be present. Otherwise, thinking becomes more automatic and talking becomes a little more automatic and dominated by thinking. When we can be more present, we can often be more authentic, uh, more grounded, less reactive. We can come more from all the parts of ourselves, our body, our emotions, our deeper intentions. Sometimes our thinking can be more narrow. And so being present helps us to be more uh, available. It also is very, very significant for actually being more autonomous, having more freedom, because we don't necessarily just follow the reactive thoughts that are coming through. If I have some awareness of my body as I'm here and I notice, oh, you know, it gives me a way not to be caught up in the automatic mind. This all being said, it's not easy to be present. It's easier to practice it when you're not speaking or don't have responsibility. Like right now, possibly, as you're listening, can you listen to me and maybe just feel your hands or feel the connection on the chair or cushion or, or sofa? Uh, can you be present to your body? Right? These are ways to practice. We can practice especially where it's uh, easier, which is generally when we don't have to speak, when we're listening. Um, but this is a very important capacity. Again, I would say intermediate to advanced Developing mindfulness of the body is crucial for having the capacity to be present uh, while speaking. And I know from working with developing mindfulness body, both myself and with others, that this is, for many of us, it's not something which is there initially or not there with our conditioning. You know, I, I sometimes mention how when I was a, a student, uh, uh, living for a year in Germany, I had a long walk every day and I noticed myself uh, thinking all the time. And I said to myself, I'm not aware of my body at all. I'm just like consciousness on a pole, which was very, very shocking to see that, right? But, and so for me, I was not really raised to be aware of my body, even though I had been physically very active. I was actually a competitive athlete and I was a competitive swimmer, and but well, I was very physical, but not aware of my body. Interesting, right? So that plays a key role in developing the capacity to be present. Another, another help for being present is periodically pausing, just stopping, coming back to yourself, coming back to being present. And there's some more advanced practices, which I've sometimes taught, which can even go further. It's possible to have, uh, I sometimes teach, I won't go into this now, maybe another time, 
I sometimes teach a way of practicing, a more advanced practice, in which I am aware of my own being. I'm also aware empathically of the other. And then I'm also thirdly aware of the space that holds us both. And so that's, that's a further horizon. That's, that's not easy. When I've worked with groups, it can take six or nine months to really move towards developing that. But I wanted to mention that because it's, for us, it could be just to, when I'm listening, like right now, can I just have some body awareness, my hands, my feet, contact with the cushion. And then for the rest of the time, I want to move to, as it were, applying these foundations of skillful speech to challenging situations. So I want to invite you right now to reflect what makes a speech situation, maybe a conversation with another dialogue or being in a group or it could be even in terms of a larger society, what makes speech or communication difficult? What comes to mind? Could be something that happens in the interaction, could be what the other person says or does, could be something that occurs for you. Just reflect what makes, what makes um, speech or communication difficult for you. So reflect on that and then we want to invite you to enter some responses into the chat. And uh, Carlita is going to read some of these. So you can enter your response in the chat. What makes speech or communication difficult for you? Your experiences, the others, what you experienced together. Okay. Okay, beautiful. Colleen wrote um, that writing the script for the other person, uh, Mickey is saying, when I don't agree with the other person, that makes it difficult. Um, Jenny noted, when I'm feeling a deep emotion like fear or anger, mm -hmm. that makes it difficult. Uh, Lucy is stating when I'm afraid. Uh, Ginger's noting a lack of confidence in my ability to communicate my side of the argument. Mm. That makes it difficult. Michael noted the emotional tone of the other person's speech. Catalina mentioned, uh, oh my, they're coming in so fast. Let's see here. Let me, let me get another one. Uh, Rosie's stating, if I'm afraid I might upset the other person, mm. I might in my own being, start to shut down. Hmm. And let's see. Another one is, Anna noted, when there's no verbal or nonverbal feedback from the other person. Hmm. Maybe three or four more, Carlita. Okay, great. When the other person is doing other things, like texting or... <laughs> or being distracted uh, makes it very difficult mm -hmm. to continue the conversation. 
Uli mentioned feeling like an insignificant minority. Hmm. We have another one, uh, Anne mentioned, when there's a big emotional charge Hmm. and it's almost too much to keep going. Maybe one more? One more. Uh, Having a difficulty with... um, Speaking with someone who who uh, is where maybe our language isn't their first uh, primary language. So when others speak a different language from me, sometimes when I'm speaking to them in that second language, I might be misunderstood. Yeah, great. Thank you. We could uh, we could really work with this uh, theme probably for six months or a year, and it would be time very well spent. It's a uh, such a huge area. And how many could relate to one or more of what was said? You can raise your hand. Yeah. And again, it'd be valuable. Maybe, maybe Carlita could, if you can actually, is it possible for you to collect everything in the chat in a a word file? I'd love to see them all. Absolutely. I will save the chat right now. Yeah. Great. Thank you. So I want, to, I want to talk generally about reactivity and then identify these eight ways of working with the situation. I think what was named really points out a lot of the, a lot of the challenges. Sometimes it's what I'm experiencing. I'm experiencing anger or anxiety or, or fear. Sometimes it's the dynamic and not knowing what to say. The other person is, is texting or just not, not communicating, how to work with, with those. Um, sometimes it comes from other circumstances, like uh, being in a situation where I'm speaking in a language which is not my native language, you know, um, you know which, which I know from having been in other countries can be, uh, can be quite hard. Um, and so one starting point is just remembering the teaching about reactivity. And one initial guideline is trying to be, first of all, trying to notice when I become reactive and try to res- trying to respond in a non-reactive way, which is not always easy. So... We can remember we can remember the teachings about reactivity. I, I like to use reactivity as as many of you know as a translation of dukkha. So reactivity is something more compulsive, semi-conscious, more automatic, in which I tend to more automatically push away something. Interpersonally, I could do that by being judgmental, by uh, just having a view about the other by uh, just getting very angry, uh, although not all forms of anger are reactive. Uh, but the other form of reactivity is the grabbing hold, is the grabbing hold of what I take to be pleasant, right? And some of you may remember the teaching that I like to give a lot of the two arrows, where it's the Buddha says, how. Uh, 
how does a practitioner differ from a non-practitioner? And he gave an example of someone having an unpleasant experience. And he said that both practitioners and non-practitioners have unpleasant experiences. What differentiates them is how they, as it were, respond to something difficult. Someone who is a non-practitioner, which again means us when we're not practicing, uh, we would tend, and he said the first situation of having something unpleasant happen is like being shot by an arrow. It's having the first arrow there. And he said non-practitioners will tend to shoot a second arrow when something difficult happens as if that would help. Right? And so I may have a difficult interaction and I blame the other person, I judge the other person, I act out, and all sorts of things. That would be shooting the second arrow. And the Buddha said what the, what the uh, practitioner learns to do is when the first arrow is there, something difficult, unpleasant, challenging, I learn to respond to the situation but not shoot the second arrow. In other words, not be reactive. And that, that's a general teaching which will apply to speech, difficult speech situations. How can I respond non-reactively? So it's, and it's very important, I'll come back to it, that sometimes we just want to withdraw from the situation, but here we're looking at what is a skillful response, okay? And again, what is a skillful non-reactive response? So I'm making a more technical distinction between being reactive and being responsive, even though in English we sometimes use those words to mean the same thing. So being reactive, I'm linking with uh, being more automatic, semi-conscious or unconscious, and compulsive, and responsive coming more out of freedom and wisdom and care. So that's, that distinction will, be, will uh, guide how we, how we work. And we could also link reactivity of those two forms uh, to uh, of the pushing away kind to aversion and sometimes even hatred and the grabbing hold to greed. So this lines up with the teaching about greed, hatred, and delusion. Reactivity covers greed and hatred or aversion, and then it's all fueled by delusion. Okay. So I wanted to get that out. I won't, I won't use that too much more, but just to say that uh, what we're looking for is learning better how to respond wisely with care, but non-reactively to difficult situations. That's what we're really uh, in training for, because we can, as it were, have right on our side, or justice even on our side, and if we're reactive, in a sense, we keep the cycles of reactivity going, right? That if I you know, the other person may have done something quite off, you know, maybe let's say not kept an agreement, said something very nasty. And if I am reactive, and even though in a sense I'm in the right, and I react and say something equally nasty, I keep the cycles going. And a lot of difficulties in relationships are basically, you know, one person's reactive, the other person feels, oh, that's not right, but then it's just reactive right back, and it goes in circles. How many people know that one? 
right? That's, that's again, uh, very, very common. And this also links up, I think, to the teachings that we get from people like uh, uh, Gandhi and King about nonviolence. It's really how can we respond strongly, forcefully, but not keep the cycles of violence going or the cycles of hatred going. So I think it lines up there. So eight ways. I'll be, I'll be brief here and then we can open things up. First of all, this is number one, clarify your intentions. When you're in a difficult situation, when I'm in a difficult situation, what's my intention? Again, here it often can be helpful to pause. Something just was triggering. Can I pause? And my tendency might be to be reactive, but can I come back? What do I really want here? You know, do I really want to connect and have mutual understanding? Or do I just want to be seen as right and get my way, right? And hopefully we, we are more tending towards the first. Do I want to uh, have some connection, reconciliation, mutual understanding? What is my intention? So clarifying intention is a first uh, tool, a first capacity. Secondly, uh, we want to work with the foundations that we already discussed. So I would say a second is to come back to the ethical guidelines. When I'm in a difficult situation, can I come back to a commitment not to, to be truthful, not to har try to harm the other as much as possible, even come out of my heart and ask continually questions about timing, right? In difficult conversations, timing can get really, really crucial. You know, I may have this urgency, we have to talk about it now, but it might not be the right time. So looking at timing is very, very important. Uh, developing uh, presence, not easy in the midst of the difficult conversation. Can I be present so I'm not just caught up in my thinking? So I can notice and even you know, as we get more skillful, and this is uh, going to depend somewhat about where the other person's at, sometimes I can name, and it can be actually helpful, oh, I'm feeling nervous, my body is trembling a little bit, I'm a little bit tight. You know, it, with a, someone who's also interested in mutual understanding, these can be very, very helpful for working with difficulties. But with some people, that would not be so wise or skillful. And then the last of the foundational areas is the one I'm naming as the fourth. See if we can actually, maybe not in the moment, but later, can I have an empathic understanding of where the other person is at? And we might go back to the exercise that we used, I think, uh, uh, when I was last here and the time before, of what uh, is sometimes called the empathy map, where I have a piece of paper. Do you, some of you were here we had a piece of paper, we divided it into four quadrants. And then on the left-hand side, I have my emotions and my deeper needs. On the right-hand side, I have the other person's emotions and deeper needs. And I try to see, with the difficult conversation, what was I feeling? What was the other person feeling, as best I can tell? What were my deeper legitimate needs? Oh, I just wanted to be heard. What were the other person's deeper legitimate needs? Oh, 
oh, that person just wanted to be heard too. <laughs> Interesting, right? Right? And we were both frustrated, right? Some, sometimes we can see this. And so developing empathic understanding, sometimes after the fact, it's not easy in the moment, but as we get more skilled, it becomes possible in the moment. And a lot of this is going to depend on the context. There's some situations where maybe we're having a difficult conversation with someone we're close to. There's a history of having worked things out in the past and certain things are possible that may not be possible, let's say, with a boss, right? Or with uh, a different kind of uh, difficult conversation. So context matters a lot. Fifth guideline is to do our own inner work with the difficult emotions and the reactivity. So this is really crucial for a lot of our difficult conversations or difficult communications. They have duration, they go over time. They're not one-time things. And so, especially with people we have ongoing relationships with, a very crucial part of working with difficulties is doing my own inner work. So I can, I can bring up uh, my anger or my anxiety or my fear. I can notice how it comes up naturally in my mindfulness practice. I can also deliberately bring it up in the context of a formal sitting and see what it's like, see what's, what's there for me. Just hang out with the anger. Just be present with it. And there's a lot that can happen in the inner work. You know, we can do all sorts of inner work in the context of relationships. I can, I was just talking with someone yesterday who was talking about doing uh, forgiveness practice with a family member with whom there's been a lot of difficulty. And uh, at the moment, not so helpful to speak, but can do forgiveness practice that works with a lingering resentment. You know, and so we can definitely do inner practice that transforms and works through difficult emotions, reactions, long-standing hurt, and so forth. There's a lot that can be done separate from the communication with the other person. And we can also notice our views or our stories, our narratives. We can notice my story saying, that person's really messed up, right? We may be noticing something legitimate, but being fixated on the view that person's really messed up is not going to help with communication, right? And it can be a way of defending ourselves from actually feeling something. And there may be ways that the person also has work to do, right? That, that can be the case. So we can, we can work with a num in a number of different inner ways with what comes up. I can work with how it feels to have anger coming at me, you know, and I can notice, oh, and it's a little scary. And I can, I can bring that up sometimes again. I can bring up the situation in my imagination for a minute or so, and then look into what I'm experiencing. I can do this at the end of my mindfulness practice when I'm fairly quiet or, or relatively quiet, and I can bring up a difficult situation to try to see what's it like in my body, what's it like in my mind. And one thing to say also 
is sometimes, and this can happen more in the moment, but also can be there at other times, sometimes there's physiological activation or even an activation of material that we might call trauma. And there are ways of, you know, there are ways of working with that, doing inner practices, especially grounding in the body, having skillful ways to be less activated if that comes up in the moment. You know, maybe I can say more about that another time, but especially to, uh, to feel one's hands and feet if one's activated, not to be so much in the story. Sometimes just to bring one's attention, if this is happening in the moment, to something uh, attractive, pleasant, beautiful. If there's a close relationship, we could actually um, say to the other person, could we pause? I'm feeling activated, right? Can't do that in all situations, but in some we can. So, so you can see, I think there is going to be room to come back and look at these in more depth, because I'm going over these a little bit quickly. Uh, so the sixth is, watch for what we might call the near enemies of skillful speech. These might be when we actually defer to an old pattern. Maybe I go into passivity, or maybe I have a difficult conversation and I go back into an old mode, maybe of being codependent, of caring for the other person but not taking care of myself. We want to watch for these patterns arising because for some of us, we don't want to go directly into the difficulties, but we might go into a way of avoiding them, going into these patterns. Many of us, for example, including myself, have had conditioning to be conflict avoidant. How many of us have had that conditioning? You can just raise, so it's maybe the majority even, uh, but to be conflict avoidant, and we might have something difficult come up, and we might, one or the other of us, or both of us might say, Let's just pretend it never happened. It's, you know, I'm not going to go there, right? And in some situations, it can be skillful to, to not go into a conflict, but in many situations, it's actually more skillful to try to resolve it. So we want to watch our tendencies uh, to be conflict avoidant. And I've seen this in numerous Buddhist communities, even at the collective level that it's not always easy in those communities to work with uh, difficulties or conflicts in communication and otherwise uh, because there's so much uh, conflict avoidance built into the culture, right? And we can also see this in the larger culture, you know, that we've had, you know, we don't, we don't deal well with conflicts collectively, right? You can look to how, you know, just to name the two most egregious harms done in the U.S., uh, the, you know, the, the genocidal attempts towards Native Americans and then slavery, Jim Crow, and the residues haven't really been dealt with fully. We don't want, you know, collectively, we don't go into them in any sort of full way. So that, you know, so these manifest interpersonally, but also collectively, you know, this uh, kind of conflict avoidance. So we want to watch that in ourselves. Sometimes we call this spiritual bypassing. We say to ourselves, there's a difficulty. I'm just going to let it go because I'm a spiritual person. 
We sometimes call that spiritual bypassing. How many people know that term? So a lot of you. So we want to watch out for that. So that gives you the flavor. We want to watch out for ways that we may not, uh, that we may use different tendencies and reasons to avoid conflict. The seventh is, as much as possible, and this could bear a lot more attention later, the seventh is, as much as possible in a difficult conversation, try to meet the needs of, uh, legitimate needs of all concerned. You know, this is sometimes talked about in terms of looking for a both-end resolution of a conflict. Can I be concerned, and this can come out of empathy, can I be concerned about what matters for the other as well as what matters for myself and look for a resolution that tries to take care of what matters both for me and the other. When that happens and we do it, we deepen the relationship and we also tremendously deepen our own capacity for dealing with future difficulties. So the relationship becomes a learning process, which is beautiful, right? Really can be very inspiring. Sometimes that's not possible to do that, but we can we can try our best. And I think there's a lot more I can can say about that. You know, but this is where empathy, mutual understanding, compassion are really crucial. And then the last thing to say is that it can be very helpful to uh, do role plays with our difficult conversations. Maybe we'll do this next time. Like do a short role play. They're really fun to watch. We do these when I teach wise speech retreats, and they're so much fun. Uh, you can you could do a role play with uh, someone you live with or a friend, where one maybe maybe the other person plays you, and you play the person you have difficulty with. It can be really exciting. You do a three minute, four minute role play, and you can learn a lot, and you you know you can ground in the intentions, but Role plays are uh, very, very, very crucial for difficult situations. And I was even thinking, I think maybe I'll end with a short exercise, which is a kind of a role play. So right now, think of a difficult situation that you're going to do a role play just on your own. Think of a difficult situation, difficult communication situation, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is the most difficult, have it be in the middle. Not a 9 or a 10, but maybe a 5 or a 6. Maybe a difficult understanding with someone at work, or a minor difficulty with a family member, something like that. So to first think of that. Think of what situation, that, that's unresolved. Think of what you want to work with. And then imagine yourself with that person. And you're going to be talking about the difficult situation. And you're there in the situation. Imagine, imagine the physical location. And now a, a, a person who you think is wise 
comes and taps you on the back. This could be any wise person, could be your grandmother, could be someone who's not alive, could be the Buddha, Kuan Yin. Anyone you think is wise. So see who that wise person is who taps you on the back. Okay, raise your hand if you got the wise person. Okay. And now the wise person exchanges bodies with you. And actually the wise person now looks like you. Maybe the, it's the Buddha. The Buddha looks like you and now enters into dialogue with the person with whom we've had difficulty. Watch what happens. So. Just imagine that dialogue occurring right now with the wise person looking like you talking. Okay, we'll take a minute or two for this. Take about another 30 seconds. Okay, and now uh, the wise person uh, steps behind you, you're back in your own body. You can say thank you to the wise person. The wise person goes away. And just reflect for a moment on what you learned from that, maybe along with anything that stood out from the talk or that you want to explore. Just take about a minute to reflect on what you learned along with what you might like to explore further. So thank you for your kind attention and your explorations. And uh, we have a, we have some time now for any anyone want to share what you experienced, ask a question, bring up something else. Uh, can do that either by using the raise hand function under participants or entering your question in the chat. If you do it, the raise hand function, you can 
just speak directly. Or you can put your question in the chat and uh, Carlita will read it. Or sharing in the chat. Doesn't have to be a question. Maybe I should ask first, how many people had some insight come during that role play? Yeah, that's good. Okay, Donald, I see Anna has her hand raised, and I also am receiving submissions privately via chat. Great. Okay, Anna, please. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just want to share that probably the wise person had that list with emotions and needs from each one. Yeah. Because it was all based on trying to resolve the situation based on the list. Yeah. So it was very interesting to, to see that. Yeah. Thanks, Anna. So, yeah, so bearing in mind the emotions and deeper needs of the other was crucial for moving things along. Great. Thank you. Wonderful. And next we have a question that came in via chat, Donald. Okay. Uh, it is, I get really tired of working with a certain relationship and I want to give up. Is that just avoiding? Let's see. So very tired of uh, what would giving up mean? Uh, my, yeah. I think my sense is avoiding the relationship. Avoiding but it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, ending the relationship, excuse en me. Ending, That's ending the relationship. Um, yeah, well, again, I'll, I'll say what occurs to me. I think I imagine if we looked for the collective wisdom from the group, we would have we would have good collective wisdom. But what occurs to me is that, yeah, there are circumstances in which we may go our different ways. And that is an option. Um, sometimes the conditions make it very hard for things to uh, move on. You know, uh, we can want to work with sometimes with the uh, you know, with these, you know, manifesting these different capacities, but the other person may be a stone wall, you know. I should say that using all of these capacities I named doesn't guarantee it's going to work, right? That's, uh, that's reality, right? And it, it takes, uh, I was going to say it takes two to tango, right? It takes two to want to resolve something, and sometimes the other person's not there, I think it's in this context, it's probably good just to know one's own conditioning. If I'm, you know, I, I think of my own experience, if I'm conflict avoidant and haven't worked through some of that, then I might more easily give up earlier. And so we want to know our own conditioning. And if I have tendencies to give up, if that's the case, then I might make a special effort to try to see if there's something else I might do. Could be helpful to do a role play, but the, you know, I'm, I'm answering generally because I don't know the specifics of the situation. Uh, but but one, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, if I may, the one specific uh, that the participant added is there's the desire to end the relationship, but it's a tough one because it's a sibling. It's a sibling. You can't end the relationship. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, I, but I think that's not what's being said. I'm being a little bit coy there. Um, yeah, yeah. If it's a sibling, you could have a timeout or a break. And that's, it's sad when that happens, but uh, sometimes that occurs. But uh, it's, it's always possible for things to, uh, as it were, get revived later. But definitely people sometimes say it's, you know, again, I'm speaking generally and I hesitate to do that too much, but it can sometimes be wise and skillful to take a break from a relationship for a while that, you know, where there's an ongoing relationship like a sibling or very deep connection. Without knowing the specifics, that's maybe all I can say. Okay, thanks, Donald. Okay, next we're going to go to Michael. Michael, you have your hand up. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. You're just going to go ahead and click on, if you saw the uh, request to unmute yourself, just go ahead and click on the microphone and that will make your mic live. Well, while Michael is getting that, maybe I should go to the next question that came in via chat. Uh, And let's see, that is, uh, okay, one of the questions is coming up. When you're getting overwhelmed, you mentioned staying in your body. If you could just talk a little bit more about other tips of staying in your body so you're not activated by the other person immediately Yeah, and get into a knee jerk reaction to state, you know, your thoughts. Yeah. And no, that's a very, a very important question. And again, I think I can go into more depth on this. Um, it's helpful to, again, this is where the mindfulness can come in. It's helpful really to know one's own patterns of activation. Like when I feel stress, where do I feel it? And to to know uh, to know when one's being activated, also to know when there's a state of overwhelm, as opposed to some activation which is workable. Know whether there's a history of trauma, and so forth. So there's a lot of uh, uh, lot of value in knowing one's own patterns here, and also in terms of the specific situation using that scale of one to 10 and asking, is it at a nine or a 10 or is it a five? In other words, is it a level of activation which is workable or is it in the overwhelm zone? If it's in the overwhelm zone, it's probably wise to um, leave the situation or to, again, so much is gonna depend on context, but to ask for a pause or say, you know, I'm feeling really overwhelmed and activated physiologically, could we maybe come back tomorrow and look at the situation? I think I'd be in a much better place to be connected with you. you know, again, that would be appropriate in some circumstances. So sometimes to pause, this is getting into the question of timing, right? And to know the level of activation. If, it's a, uh, if I'm activated a little bit, then it can be helpful to do something like feel my feet, feel my hands, uh, know some things which help me not to 
have the activation start moving from a 5 to an 8 to a 9 to a 10, right? And sometimes some of the techniques I mentioned, like feeling the body, feeling my emotions, very possibly, again, naming even, again, depends on the context, naming that I'm feeling activated some, could we pause for a little while? And, you know, I think I'll be much more skillful. And uh, if we could just take a break for a few minutes, let me just go to the bathroom uh, and so forth. So there are different ways to do it. If, you know, sometimes we could just feel the body, feel the feet, and that would be enough to help me be more centered. But sometimes that wouldn't be enough. So those are a few things. Also, one of the other techniques I mentioned was bringing the attention to see something beautiful or pleasant. That can also, that changes the physiology, actually can change the way the, the uh, brain is working. Wonderful. Thank there's, you. There's a lot there. We can, we can come back yeah. to that. Thank you, Donald. I see Michael's unmuted. Okay. Go ahead, Michael. Hi. The example I was thinking of had to do with family members kind of being on <clears throat> polar opposites of the political uh, yeah. and philosophical spectrum. Yeah. And I have a commitment to trying to break down some of the barriers in that communication. Yeah. And what my wise person said to me was um, had me look at kind of negotiating an agreement to stay in the conversation yeah. an acknowledgement that we're not going to fix it all or, you know, cover this whole gulf that exists between us yeah. or get our needs met all right away, you know, feel heard, feel seen, seeing all of that, um, those kinds of emotional needs. So just trying to stay in the conversation, agreeing to get together another time, you know, things like that, simple steps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Steps, I guess. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, I think in those kind of situations, again, so much is going to depend on the context, but um, at least from your end, empathy can be so crucial. In fact, I think that empathic understanding of those with other views is one of the secrets to healing this whole country. You know, and it doesn't have to mean you agree with the views. It doesn't mean that you're trying to convince the other person to give up that person's views. But can you just listen empathically? Typically, again, with the model we used earlier of emotions and deeper legitimate needs, there's going to be something legitimate there that you can recognize. And if, yeah, you, can, yeah, if you can listen to the person empathically and... It, you know, again, depends on the context. If you can encourage, could we just listen empathically to each other with some that will work, with some that won't work? But uh, I'm trying to think of a person I did a training with once actually saw uh, empathic understanding about racial issues and dialogues within families across divides about race and racism among uh, white people being the key to uh, healing the country. And he actually has a whole program and methodology based on this because he thought that it actually is possible to have, uh, uh, as it were, without trying to convince people to 
be one way or the other, that one could actually have, um, as it were, both liberal, if we call it that, and, and so-called conservative approaches that would also be dedicated to ending racism. It's very interesting. I'll have to bring in the name. I have the book around the corner, but I forgot the author's name. But it's, um, it's a very, uh, I was very, very impressed. And he's working on a national level. So it's, but he says empathy is the key here. Empathic understanding, not trying to tell the other person you're wrong, but trying to find, as it were, common ground is a key way to work. So um, maybe try it in the next week, Michael. Let us know what happens next week. <laughs> okay. So how are we, uh, Carlita? How are we? Well, it's uh, five past 12. So we should move um, towards finishing. Was there anyone else who had a, a question via the, uh, the chat? There were no other chat-based okay. questions, no. Okay, great. So I think we can finish up then. So let's, let's orient towards uh, next time. I'm hoping many of us will come back. I'm hoping that many of us, how many of you would like to do, you can raise your hand in the usual way. How many of you would like to attend to this issue in the next week? And really look at how you work with challenging conversations. Great. I will later today post the talk on Dharma Seed. So that'll be available. And right now, maybe just reflect, how might I take, in this case, my speech practice, and be skillful, as skillful as possible with any challenges that I have. Just reflect on your own intentions coming out of today. Could even think of particular situations that might arise or that you want to deliberately go, go into, go back to. And then also remembering the connection of our growing skillfulness with challenging situations, also being very linked to our continual cultivation of mindfulness, our continual cultivation of a kind heart. And so we can, we can see how all of these are related. So please continue also with that, with those cultivations in whatever ways you, you do that. So we'll, we'll finish. Um, I want to say thanks to Carlita for the support. We'll finish with Dedication of Merit. May our time together be a benefit to us, be a benefit to those in our lives, and then beyond those circles. May it be a benefit ultimately to all beings, remembering that we are part of all beings. So thanks so much, everyone. And I think uh, Carlita will now unmute everyone. And one of my favorite times of the session, we can all uh, say goodbye to each other or whatever we want to do. We'll, 
You're welcome to stay on for a few moments. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy the application. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Thanks again, Carlita. My pleasure. Thank you so much for your wonderful teachings. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.